The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome to Rethinking Democracy in the Age of Pandemic. I'm Eileen Galuli, and I direct the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities at Columbia University. This pop-up made for a Zoom Room series is a joint venture with the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is directed by my colleague, Jane Allmeyer, who I think will be flashed on the screen. And if not, <laughs> um, you will miss seeing her stunning background. There she is. Stunning background. She's joining us from um, an island off the coast of Donegal. So thank you, Jane. A special welcome to uh, all our Zoom room attendees, including many of our colleagues from Trinity, Columbia, the Universities of Sao Paulo, Virginia, Ballystock, Utrecht, JNU, and Ambedkar in Delhi, and more. We're also joined by journalists authors and artists, policymakers, and representatives from government, business, and civic and cultural organizations. And a welcome also to those of you who are tuning in on Facebook, and special thanks there to Irish Central for helping us get out the word. Today's panel is on inequalities, and it's the third in our five-part series on responses to COVID-19. If you missed the first two panels on nations and borders, and on marginalized groups. Both are available as podcasts on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. And a video recording of marginalized groups can be found on the Facebook page as well. This series is developed out of a longer partnership between Columbia and Trinity, which included an 18 month Global Humanities Institute on the Crises of Democracy that was generously funded by the Consortium of Humanity Centers and Institutes and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Under Jane's leadership, we recently submitted a grant application to EU Horizon 2020 to fund a project on participatory democracy called Isagoria or Isagoria, depending on what country you come from. And we're delighted that some of our partners from that project are also joining us today. So why this topic? Life as we know it has changed in the past few months, upending our economies and straining our social and political institutions. This series asks what COVID-19 might mean now and in the long term for democracy and democratic values. Today, our speakers will focus on the role inequality plays in the current public health crisis. While touching everyone, the pandemic disproportionately affects those already challenged by systemic social and economic inequalities. Our speakers will explore issues related to class, gender, race, age, and religion, and they'll consider how the impulse to blame leads to new forms of social bias and scapegoating, as well as exacerbating others. As the world begins to reopen its economies, what might we do to deepen our commitment to build a more just and equitable new normal? So the format today is we'll have a panel discussion with three speakers. Each speaker will speak up to nine minutes. Then it's over to you, the participants in the Zoom room and our audience on Facebook. We want you to participate. 
Um, I just got a message that threw me off here. Hold on a second. Um, if you're in the Zoom room, you can hold the, uh, join the conversation in one of two ways. You can raise your digital hand, um, click on the icon labeled participants, and then click raise hand on the bottom of the window to the right of your screen. Uh, when you're called upon, you'll be unmuted to ask your question and note that there won't be any video. Um, or you can submit your questions throughout the discussion through the Q&A function on your screen and I'll read your question out for you. If you're on Facebook, please do post your questions in the comments area. We'll be collecting those and asking, um, and asking them on your behalf. In all cases, tell us very briefly about yourself, just your name and background. Um, we're aware that we have lots of experts in the Zoom room, so be forewarned, we may call on you. And if this happens, Francesca will invite you to unmute, unmute yourself. Um, and if it's for a longer discussion, you may be asked to join the virtual panel. We will also be tweeting with the handles at TLRHub and at SOF Heyman, H-E-Y-M-A-N, and please use the hashtag Hub Matters. Now to introduce our panelists in the order in which they'll be speaking. Sucheta Mahajan is a professor at the Center for Historical Studies at JNU in New Delhi. She's a former Trinity Long Room Hub Visiting Research Fellow and involved in both the GHI and Isagoria projects. She works on the history and politics of the 20th century, movements for social change, connected histories of independence and partition, and the practice of oral and public history. Uh, next up is uh, Colm Tobin, um, uh, who is an award-winning Irish novelist, short story writer, essayist, playwright, journalist, critic, and poet, and colleague at Columbia. His works include Brooklyn, 2008, The Empty Family, 2010, and The Master, 2004, amongst many others. He's currently the Mellon Professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. And last up is Seamus Khan. He's the chair and professor of sociology at Columbia University and also a former visiting research scholar at the Trinity Long Room Hub. He writes on culture, inequality, gender, and elite, elites. In response to the school closures, he developed the youth remote learning online platform to engage students who are on hiatus from traditional classrooms. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sucheta. Thank you. Hi. Well, uh, it's a very grim uh, topic to be talking about. And um, also, I'm bringing in a perspective which is from India, from what might be called uh, the Global South. Uh, but before I take up India, let me just begin very quickly with two paradoxes, both related to the global nature of the pandemic. The first is to do with what I call its apparent equality versus the actual inequality. The impression of apparent equality, which is created when the reach of the pandemic extends to Prince Charles, Boris Johnson, the royal family of UAE, Trudeau's wife, Putin's aid, Trump's aid, 
such that a paranoid president gets himself tested every few hours. But a closer look at the ground level shows that the pandemic, and more specifically, the strategies adopted by governments to contain it, exacerbate existing structural inequalities, be they of class, gender, race, or in the case of India, religion-based community. The second paradox is how a global pandemic, far from engendering global initiatives to counter it, has exposed the limitations of even existing transnational groupings, the EU, for example, and hardened even the boundaries of those nation states which had become a bit soft. It's all about Italy, all about Spain, not about Europe any longer. Each country for itself. In South Asia too, there is no regional cooperation. In fact, in recent days, there's been some alarming muscle flexing at the Indochina and Indo-Pakistan border. I'm gonna take up three points. The first is broadly under the rubric of class. Well, coming to India, the worst affected, as we all know, are the poor always, not only by this pandemic, but by the ill-considered policies which have been put in place to contain it. Some of you might know about the nationwide lockdown of 1.3 billion people with a countdown of four hours, almost like playing the game statues, freezing everyone where they are. The poor were hit most by this sudden lockdown, having very little staying power, as we know. A survey in today's newspaper said that as many as 34% households could only last out for a week with the provisions and income that they had. After that, they needed financial assistance. In the media, we've had searing images of the long march home by the poor migrants, reminiscent to many of us of partition, minus the communal violence, thank God, but plus state violence. There are video grabs of policemen beating people for the alleged crime of just walking back to their homes, criminalizing poverty in the, uh, as a result of poor people being mowed down by a train, by a truck, falling to the side of the road, exhausted, hungry, helpless. On Mother's Day, someone posted an image of a frail man carrying his old mother on his back. Another post was of a picture of a baby being tossed up to a family member who was on top of a truck already overladen with people. Juxtapose this with pictures of a young girl being evacuated from abroad on a priority ticket on a special flight arranged by the government, no less, being reunited with her pet poodle at a very fancy airport in India. Social media is replete with posts on how to evade boredom, the 10 best films you can watch, how to have Zoom meetings with college pals, recipes for dishes, etc. Experts in health and economics have advocated more government expenditure for the poor with immediate 
emphasis on provision of food. It is absolutely appalling that the poor are dying of hunger when the godowns of the government agencies are overflowing. 60 million tons of food grains are available, we are told, and we've recently had a huge bumper harvest. Another immediate requirement for the poor is shelter, which not only includes camps in cities, but also arrangements for their journeys back home. And last but not the least, adequate provision for health care. This is almost a laugh. 63 million people in our country have no access to health care. The structural inequalities in the economy then where 270 million people out of 1.3 billion are below the poverty line, where we have distorted priorities in allocations in the budget routinely, where there's a general short shift given to the unorganized sector, which constitutes a huge part of our economy. And what makes it worse is a generalized societal stance, call it an attitude, of aloofness or distance from the poor, which compound the present problem. Moving to the second point about religious-based community and inequality associated with that. We know from historical experience that whenever we have global crises, including pandemics, a common reaction of people driven by fear is to find scapegoats in other communities. It's been the Jews, it's been the Roma, it's been the witches. It's not only Trump who called Corona a Chinese virus. In India too, people from the northeastern states of India have been facing discrimination because of their appearance. Today they are being attacked for allegedly being carriers of the so-called Chinese virus. The primary target, of course, remain the Muslims, 200 million of them in a country of 1.3 billion people who have been the focus of anti-Muslim sentiment, indeed, I should say hatred, since the present ruling regime came to power. In the last year, they bore the brunt of a new citizenship legislation, the protest to which, though it was across the board, across civil society was portrayed as a Muslim affair. And the recent riots in Delhi, in which Muslims were attacked while police stood by, obviously with orders from the top. Newly coined terms, which give you a sort of the GBs, like Corona Jihad, evoke the othering of Muslims, steeped in an existing atmosphere of Islamophobia the irresponsible action of the Tablighi Jamaat in holding a congregation and subsequently concealing the violation, this was an incident in Delhi, did not help, especially when at one time, more than one third of the cases, the COVID cases in India were linked to it. It didn't help anybody that there were daily press briefings by the authorities which contributed to this religious profiling. In the breakdown of the number of cases, the number of those cases which were related to this Jamaat was specifically named. 
more generally, Muslims have been vilified in the social media as well as the print and electronic media. Raj Thackeray, a well-known right-wing leader who has much clout in Maharashtra, one of the worst affected states in India, called for these members of the Jamaat to be stopped. A leader from the ruling party, no less, described them as human bombs, I'm quoting, for intentionally spreading the virus. Others accused the Jamaat of carrying out a, I quote, a Talibani crime. Emboldened by support from their leaders, there were numerous instances of Hindu communal groups and even individuals beating up brutally and even lynching Muslims and calling for their social and economic boycott. The strategy of the government to contain this virus has been described as social distancing, um, defined as keeping a couple of meters away from the person who's next to you. As one of our insightful political commentators has put it, in fact, social distancing in India means distancing of the majority community from the minority and distancing of the vocal and rich classes from the mass of the poor. That is what social distancing in India means. My last point, which I end with, is about democracy, the wider context of our discussions in the series. And I call it bringing democracy back in. What we see in India is a shrinking of democratic space. One is through the root of blatant violations of liberties, and the second is through drowning out the voices of the people, which are already faint. The pandemic has become the excuse for suppression of dissent and passing of restrictive laws. Just to give you an example, the Epidemic Diseases Act, which has recently been invoked, goes back to the colonial era. Second, after destroying both lives and livelihoods in an unplanned, complete lockdown that I talked about earlier, now, in the name of kick-starting the economy, <coughs> state governments have, quote-unquote, relaxed labor laws. What does that mean? Horrifying. Companies are now going to be allowed to employ labor for 12-hour, six-day weeks. Yes, you heard it right. 12-hour, six-day week shifts, which have rightly been described by one of our political commentators as 19th century barbarism. An entire century of labor union reforms and struggles have just been erased in one fell swoop. Surveillance has crept in through the back door through mandatory uploading of an application called Arogya intended to map the location of neighboring suspected virus cases, but which experts tell us compromise privacy. As a university professor, I have been asked to download this application. 
in a situation of no political activities in the last many weeks, the state has gone on a witch hunt of so-called anti-national, mainly Muslims, but also dissenters, critics, activists. Some of the names may not mean anything to you across the world, but some might. You may be shocked to know that the head of the Delhi Minorities Commission, who's there to safeguard minority interests, has recently been booked for sedition and he is being denied bail. And many others, including a relative of Dr. Ambedkar, uh, activist Anand Tembulde, Umar Khalid, a student leader from Drenu, where I come from, and a political dissenter, they have all been booked in this period. Last and most importantly, the rhetoric of war. Our Prime Minister talks about war against the pandemic, has justified the ignoring of any voices other than that of the state. Amartya Sen, the Nobel laureate and authority on crises, especially famines, reminded us recently that governance was a lot about listening. There is no listening, ladies and gentlemen, happening in India right, right now, especially to the voices of the poor and to those who speak for them. Any view at variance with that of the center is dubbed as against national interests. And even a state like Kerala, which is globally recognized today as having best practices for the management of the pandemic, is being systematically starved of funds. Let me end by sharing with you my biggest worry. What if we get used to the rhetoric of national interest at whose altar we have to forsake our democratic rights. Thank you. Thank you, Sutata. Um, it's wonderfully insightful, but also so terribly sobering. Um, I think I'm just now going to turn it over to Colm, who, who will speak. Um, I just want to look at three countries with three um, systems uh, to see how injustice and inequality are really going to increase um, after this and that there are really great dangers ahead. The first one is the United States, that the battle going on in the United States is not merely against the pandemic. It's a battle within the United States over ideas to do with science and ideas to do with liberty or with libertarianism. And that this sometimes looks to me like a shadow battle going on over the large question that will come in the future, which is the issue of global justice, or sorry, of um, global warming and um, climate justice. That, um, that, that in other words, in the future, the battle lines are now set that it'd be very, very difficult for the United States to operate within the world community as an equal partner to combat um, global warming, simply because as each administration will come in each four years, you would need to have the Senate on your side, Congress on your side, the White House on your side, and the governors on your side in order to, and this now looks impossible. 
And it looks as though that the world will have to go ahead without the United States or bringing them in every four years if there's a Democrat, Democratic president. But even that president will be, I think, undermined constantly by, I mean, it isn't, it isn't merely the demonstrations in Michigan, for example, the tone of them, but it is the idea that they were somehow um, supported in, in a shadowy, funny way by the president and by um, Betsy DeVos, um, who's meant to run education in the United States, but her family in Michigan um, spends, her, spends a great deal of time and money um, supporting these sort of causes, so that it looks as though in, in say, 10 years time, when we look back, we'll say that the battleground was set during the pandemic for the failure of the United States to get involved in any serious way in the battle against global warming. And that, of course, as we know from, say, people like Mary Robinson, that global, global warming will, of course, affect the poor, will affect the marginalized, almost in the same way as the pandemic itself in the United States is affecting people. In, in, in poorer areas is affecting people who, for example, it's affecting African-Americans more than white people in Manhattan. You can just see a map where there are many places that just look pure and privileged compared to other places where people have to go to work every day, no matter what. And obviously you have the prison system and obviously, um, you know, other areas of marginalization are being exacerbated by this as they will be in the future by, by by global warming. So I think that it's a very depressing, the, the battleground in the United States is very depressing, I think, for the future, not just for this pandemic, but for the battle against, against a rational science versus some sort of idea that um, we, 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 we have a right to pollute the earth and, and, and it's a fundamental right and it's all, you know. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the European Union. The European Union can, can confront anything except a crisis. It's marvelous except when there's a problem. Um, we, we've, we've had it, this is the fourth time now, we had with the, with the, with the war, war in the former Yugoslavia, where the um, European Union um, almost exacerbated problems within, within Yugoslavia by Germany recognizing Croatia without consulting its European partners. We had um, the same thing happening with, with, with immigration and with, with, with the policy over immigration with the same thing over the downturn or the bust where Germany, where every country became a nation state suddenly, as opposed to a, a member of the European Union, where, where, where Germany operated absolutely within it for its own interest and targeted countries such as Greece, and indeed Ireland and Spain and Portugal. And so, so that the nation state became um, sort of bastion during this time of crisis. And this has happened once more. And it was really depressing. It was really depressing to see Ursula van der Leyen stand up and say that she apologized from the bottom of her heart for what had happened to Italy. No, it's quick to apologize, slow to act. I don't want the bottom of her heart. Well, look, if she's so sorry now, why didn't she do something then? And how come these the, that Europe as an entity did not function in any serious way that the nation states, each state, um, conducted its own policies, some of them very unsuccessfully, um, including Ireland, um, in, in, this, um, in this crisis. The third country is Ireland, and um, one of the problems we have in Ireland is that empathy from those, those in leadership is very high compared to, say, the other English-speaking countries around us, for example, the empathy in Ireland from the government or from health officials is much higher than in England 
or indeed in the United States, say from where we're getting from, say the White House or from Mitch McConnell, so that we think these people are really working for us. And the problem is that um, this is the Department of Health and the HSE. And um, these are people who have given us the trolley system in the hospitals and they've given us the long waiting list, but not just given it, given it to them, kept promising that they would do something about this and kept not delivering. These are serial non-deliverers. So they were watching them now, for example, even today. Yes, they come on, so they might open schools. There's a big discussion about schools. There's only one thing they need to do, which is get the testing system right. Tomas Ryan of Trinity College, the immunologist, has made it very, very clear in a very clear article in the Irish Times last week that, this, that the testing system and the contact tracing system needs to work within two days. And um, we're being told, well, by the HSE and the Department of Health, we're better than we were, but we're not there yet. When, you know, that we're, this, the health system in Ireland is based on inequality. It's a two-tier system, which people who are poor do not get the same service as people who have more money. And we're watching now this system, actually it's stuck. You know, it cannot get the four or five things right that it would need to do to put in place the testing system. In other words, an IT system that would work a way of getting the, the actual tests from the GP or from the center to the lab, quick turnout. All that system seemingly, just they cannot do it at the moment. They keep promising, they keep saying they're getting better. But so they were watching in Ireland a, a sort of way that Ireland as a country generally functions with, with, with a great deal of empathy, with much promising and with very little delivery. And um, the only way this can change in Ireland is, look, we didn't put enough pressure on them about the trolleys. We didn't put enough pressure on them about the waiting list. And so we lost. I mean, these things have not been solved. They, they will remain big problems in the aftermath of this. It's not, it's not as though in the pandemic we learned we're all in this together, the private hospitals, the public hospitals, the VHI pairs, the non-VHI pairs. No, no, afterwards, this, this will go back to the way it was. But in the meantime, we need one, for once, could the Department of Health and the HSE deliver? Just for once. We know you can't deliver on trials. We know you can't deliver on waiting lists. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Oh, that's, just forget that for a few months. Just deliver on the 24-hour on the testing. Just, just once, concentrate and deliver. And um, so, um, they're the, the, so they're the three countries. Um, and um, it, it, in the aftermath of this, um, it, 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 it looks at the EU will once more have to attempt to say, we are an entity, we do have a function, and realize that in the next crisis, we would, would really like to see the European Commission, indeed the Council of Ministers, um, the European Council, the, 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 those three institutions actually functioning in some way or other for the betterment of the citizens of Europe. But the problem remains America and the problem remains America in relation to science in, and in relation to global warming for the future. Right, me finished. Great, thank you, Tom. Um, Seamus, I, I think you're on next, and I, I'm hoping that there's, you have some hope <laughs> um, to give us at the end of all this. Um, uh, thank you so much, Eileen, um, Jane, everyone at uh, the Heyman Center and Trinity, and to my two colleagues. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, Eileen, I may not have a ton of hope for you, although um, 
part of what I'll say today is that we require um, not just technical solutions, but moral solutions to what we're seeing, and that those moral commitments are going to be central to um, not just solving COVID, but solving the crises that come afterwards. And I think that COVID is highlighting a fundamental tension in all of our societies, which is that we must all be in this together to solve COVID. There's no question. Um, without a collective commitment to um, protecting one another, there's no way through this crisis. But COVID does not treat all of us the same. And this is what makes it so challenging. We are going to require these massive collective solutions and collective actions, but COVID's impacts are not equally shared. Important social differences are being highlighted, aggravated, and one might even say exploited, if you could think about a virus exploiting us. And so I want us to think about COVID not as the great unifier, um, as some of my colleagues have just said, but as the great amplifier. And then from my perspective, it is amplifying some of the fundamental moral failings of our society. And for those of us who are not scientists, who cannot come up with vaccines, who are not in policy positions, one of the things that we can do is think about what are the steps we can take to address these fundamental moral failings. We know that well now that different kinds of people are dying at much higher rates or very different rates from COVID. As a sociologist, we talk about how death is socially patterned. And these differences actually have nothing to do with COVID. In fact, they happen all the time. The elderly die at higher rates, not simply because they're older, but also because they're more likely to be poor. Black and minority ethnics die at the highest rates um, almost at all times, not just in these exceptional times. I could give examples of how white people with a college degree live 14 years longer than black people who don't have a high school degree and how impoverished adults in the United States die seven years younger. These are things that have nothing to do with COVID. Fighting COVID requires not just medical solutions, as I've said, but moral solutions. And we need to have a broad project of and commitment to equality. And this means thinking about economic equality, but not just economic equality. It means thinking about status equality and moral equality. And I wanna talk about all three of these things today. For should we not seek to address inequality, we're going to risk two things. The first is that we may win the battle with COVID, but somehow lose our souls in the process. I think we see this at play right now with the ways in which we make economic arguments about perhaps letting people die in order to open up our economies. The second risk is that we don't build a world where we're prepared for the next crisis. So as Colm has indicated, we require a new world that is gonna help us build climate change, uh, solutions to climate change. And if we don't do that, the second risk that we're running is that we live, relive this horror all over again, not with COVID, but with what comes next. We know when thinking about the perils of COVID that there's no way in which we're all equal. We can think about race and how the marginalized die at higher rates. We can think of men who are high dying at higher rates but we can think about the ways in which women, particularly mothers, are experiencing vastly different impacts of what social closure has done, the ways in which they do the vast majority of the housework. They find themselves both having to do uh, the range of jobs that they've always done before in work and at the home, as well as educate their children. We see the ways in which queer and trans people are actually particularly at risk, in large part because they're exposed to risks in general in society including being imprisoned at the highest rates in America. And being imprisoned means that you will die at a younger age. Let's provide just a little bit of data to see. Scientists have recently published a study 
of 5,700 patients hospitalized because of COVID-19 in the New York area. So this is very close to home for me. And what we found was that 94% of the patients had a chronic health problem and 88% had two or more. And the most prevalent conditions were hypertension, obesity, and diabetes. But these problems are not just health problems. They emerge because of the positions that people hold in society. Socioeconomic status, that is the uh, money and status that you have in a, in a society, is the most powerful predictor of disease, disorder, injury, and mortality that we have of all predictors. And I think it's worth report, re repeating that. If you wanted to know one thing about someone that predicted their likelihood of experiencing a disease, a disorder, an injury, or of dying, it would be their class position, their socioeconomic status. And the poor aren't just people who don't have economic stability, they are people who live in poor health. But critically, and it's very important here, poverty and inequality are not the same thing. Poverty is the condition of being poor, and inequality is the condition wherein the poor are very poor compared to the rich. And one challenge that we're facing is not just a challenge of poverty, but a challenge of inequality. And the reasons here is that inequality tends to solidify our social differences. In other words, it leads many of us to say, those people are not like me. Why should I do things that compromise my wants, desires, and freedoms for them? Sadly, we do this all the time. We do it within our national borders, but frequently across them. But COVID has no borders. And so when we imagine that other humans are not like us and not worthy of our shared sacrifice, we are making ourselves underprepared to fight something like COVID or the next major crisis that we, we hold. The other thing that we find is that high levels of inequality, and this is from epidemiological research, has negative health effects on everyone, including the rich. more fear, and more insecurity. In other words, inequality makes us feel less connected to those around us, and that produces a high degree of anxiety. Such status anxiety is critical for understanding the effects of inequality. It suggests that income inequality is harmful because it places people in a hierarchy that increases their competition with one another, that increases the stress that they experience, which leads to poor health for all of us. We see this in a lot of populations, not just human ones. There's extensive research among primates. And so if we look at groups of different kinds of primates that shows that those at the bottom of the status system die at younger ages. This helps us explain, for example, why it is that black and minority ethnic people die at higher rates or why they're particularly susceptible to COVID. They experience the negative effects of being at the bottom of a status hierarchy. It also helps us explain some of what's being experienced by queer and trans people. A vaccine, should it be possible, will help us with COVID-19, but it will not save us. This is largely because inequality kills, and it kills because poor people don't have the material conditions to satisfy their health, and so a moral commitment to economic equality could solve this and in the future. But it's important to remember that inequality kills not simply because people are poor, it's because inequality solidifies our social differences. It makes us more committed to our differences to, between us and other people. It will reduce social cohesion and increase our stress. 
we must be in a fight together in order to battle COVID. And the great challenge is that the societies that we live in do not always produce togetherness. And so while our scientists work on vaccines and our doctors work on attending to the health of those who are suffering, the rest of us, I think, also have some work to do. And the work that we have to do is to be attentive to our moral commitments to one another and to think about how it is that we can ensure uh, a society wherein inequality is reduced so that our status differences are fewer and um, uh, that those who are at the bottom of the hierarchy do not experience their position as so precarious. Thank you. Thank you, Seamus. And that was hopeful enough. <laughs> um, I think uh, we're going to just turn it over to, there are questions coming in from both the Zoom room and the um, uh, chat function or, uh, or Q&A. So I think I'm just gonna go to them right now and we'll, we'll proceed and have your questions keep coming in. Um, so this is, I have two actually from uh, Giovanni Lima who is um, at Trinity College Dublin. And she'd like to ask um, both uh, Suchetta and, and uh, Colm a question. So her question to Suchetta is, um, if, if you see that the media has been reporting on the deepening of inequality provoked by the pandemic and worsened by government measures, so whether the, the media has been able to get that word out. Um, and then to Colm, um, she'd like to know if you perceive the, how the role of government regarding inequality has changed in the three countries you analyzed. So I guess as a result of the pandemic, that the, how our, our, our perceptions of what our governments are doing have changed during this recent period. So Suchetta? Right. Um, I wish I could agree, but um, it's actually quite differential uh, the way this works. There are small sections of the media and uh, those are mostly the electronic and print media. Certain sections of them, yes, they have done a remarkable job always and continue to do that in reporting on the deepening of inequality. However, they are few and far between. Large sections of the media, including the social media, have actually perpetuated, fostered, contributed to the stereotypes, contributed to the divide that we've talked about, the class divide, the communal divide, and they've not played a positive role at all, I dare say. So Colm, can you? Just, uh, just really taking up what Seamus has been talking about, that um, it's a question of how we imagine ourselves and how we imagine others. 
that we say the pandemic is coming for everybody. And then we realize, no, it isn't. It's affecting the poor, it's affecting the marginalized, it's affecting people who already have problems more than it's affecting people who are middle class or who are rich. And then you say, well, that's appalling. That is really wrong. That, that, that really displays to us how appalling this system that's so unequal is. But the problem with that is that the next move is to say, well, that's about them. This pandemic is really about them. It's not about us. And there is such a difference between them and us that we barely can't imagine them sometimes. That, that, that division, which you see, I think, very clearly in somewhere like Manhattan or in the, in the wider New York area or indeed in Los Angeles or indeed in Ireland, that that, that business of our failure to imagine others, to say that we're actually, that the, that the need to, to really deal with inequality is fundamental to our, to our, to our to not just our, our, what we might call our moral lives, but our lives, that that is in danger with this, that it's one more step where suddenly we, we become a, a privileged group with a border around us and out there are people and they're called others. And so that's the danger in this. Uh, follow up. Um in some ways is that, you know, this is from Dan Carey. Actually, Dan, I think you're in the um, Zoom room. So maybe you should, could ask your quest the question yourself. Could you do that? Yes, have I unmuted go. myself successfully? Oh, yes. It's a new concept for all of us to be unmuted. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, my question was about, um, I guess, the question of, of, of whether they're going to be, what form of inquiry, political inquiry, will take place. It's been interesting in the UK that there's already discussion about, about that possibility. And I think it will definitely happen in the UK, and they're well, well equipped and well set up politically to do that kind of thing. The US, it'll get absolutely swamped in politics immediately and polarized. Um, but uh, you know, I'm just kind of interested in, Suchetta was talking about the lack of a global response. So th there's a question about whether you're optimistic about whether individual governments will, will have inquiries and whether there can be a global inquiry uh, emerging from this global crisis. So Dan, I think you might need to pitch it to one of them. <laughs> I, I saw Seamus nodding. I mean, I, I take that as an optimistic, you know, sign. And <laughs> so Seamus, maybe you'd have a go. Sure. I mean, um, I think that there needs to be solutions at multiple levels. And often when we think about addressing social problems, um, uh, you know, we, we, we need to think about what is happening for individuals, what is our happening on a kind of interpersonal relationship what's happening in communities, what's happening in nations, and what's happening in the world. And I think that the reckonings that we have to have will happen, have to happen at each one of these. And some of them will require or may require um, global in inquiries into the ways in which um, the exchange and movement of people influenced part of what happened. Some of them will involve thinking just very simply in our own neighborhoods. Um, so I live in Manhattan and you know one of the great things that people talk about in Manhattan is how quote unquote we're lucky because um, we can get groceries delivered very easily. We don't have to leave our house. And what we don't interrogate is who is that we? Because there has to be someone who delivers the groceries. It's not simply the case that, that like 
we have drones or we have other kinds of um, things that, 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 that are delivering them, they're human beings. And often I think the sort of reckoning that we have to have is why it is that we say to ourselves, we're lucky we don't have to leave our apartments when we rely upon other people to do things for us. And you know, this is what I mean by, and, and for me it's very important that I think um, uh, to a certain degree, the left has abandoned the language of morality. Um, it, it has often thought about, if we look at the Blair government or the you know, Clinton, maybe you don't wanna think of them as the left or the Obama administration, technocratic solutions and technical solutions to all problems. So we are going to find a vaccine that gets us out of COVID. We are going to find some technical solutions and scientific solutions that will help solve the climate change problem. Everything is a scientific and technical problem. And I think it's past time that we think about these as moral problems. And if we have the kinds of reckonings that you're suggesting that we should have, that they be not simply on the level of were proper policies and procedures followed? Was, did we make sure that the sets of rules that we've articulated were adhered to? But instead, we, we critically ask, who are we as people that we acted in these ways, that we spoke in these ways, that we treated others in these ways that compelled them to act in ways that we didn't have to act or some of us didn't have to act? I currently work from the safety of my home and yet the ways in which I live compel other people to act differently. And there's a word for that, it's called luck, but there's other words for it called oppression. Great, thank you. Um, and actually to follow up, um, Mervyn Horgan um, asked you, Seamus, specifically, if you could speak a little bit more about moral commitments um, and how they might operate at different scales so that not just about how nations behave but individuals communities regional sort of moral commitments and responsibilities how they how they might operate yes absolutely i mean part of what i was thinking about was of course the commitment to economic equality that this is very important but what i was trying to highlight is that there are other forms of equality that are incredibly important as well like status equality so um status equality meaning that I don't consider myself different than other groups of people. I may belong to a group, they may belong to a group, but actually we, we as groups don't exist necessarily in a hierarchical relationship that my group is above their group or better than their group or dominates their group. And then there's something called a generalized human equality, um, which doesn't apply necessarily to the groupings of society, but instead to all of humanity. And I think that there are major national and international projects that need to build this language. Um, um, the emphasis in the United States right now, which is the thing that I'm most attuned to, is on freedom and the ways in which freedom is essentially important. And for the American listeners, I want you to know one important thing about the academic literature on freedom. And that is that those societies that most valued freedom were those societies that enslaved people. And that concept of freedom is actually intimately tied to the idea of slavery. And the valorization of that idea therefore comes, becomes quite problematic. And we should instead valorize commitments to other people. And the ways in which those commitments 
to other people are conditioned on a conceptualization of moral equivalence. And so I think when thinking about economic equality, that happens on many scales, either the individual level or across communities. But thinking about the basic moral equivalence of humanity exists across scales. It exists in terms of my commitment to the groups um, um, that Suketo had been talking about who are all but unseen. Thank you. So this is a question for all the panelists. This is from Susan um, Murphy. Um, and she'd like to ask you all to comment on the opportunities um, you think may be opened up by the pandemic, opportunities for change. So might there be a possibility to reduce different forms of inequality and to move populations toward higher levels of resilience and sustainability? Things that happen clearly is that the middle class that is uh, occupied a fairly large part of the political geography. I feel like there's a chasm opening up there um, as people in the middle class are looking at levels of unemployment and uh, um, and so forth are maybe thinking about themselves in different ways as well. So. Um, Suchata, maybe you should go first. So, um, I'm not in a very hopeful mood at the moment. I think it's going to take a long time. Uh, it's going to take a long time for any major change to come about in the way that we look at ourselves, in the way that we look at others. Uh, I wish it was so. I wish that we were on the cusp of change. But at the moment, it seems as if we are going, certainly in India, in Brazil, in, in you know, Pakistan, Bangladesh, countries where you know, we have been interacting with you know, our uh, fellow scholars and people we know, that it seems very downhill right now. That is the, it's more about creeping authoritarianism. It's about um, the voicelessness of uh, the poor, of the underprivileged. Yes, a time has to come uh, in this when we will, as I think Shamus put it so well, um, talk, start looking at saving our souls, start looking at the moral issues. Um, I don't find that space yet uh, opening up, I would say, in India right now. I think there's, there's, there's still a grim sort of, you know, path or tale which is unfolding. And maybe when, you know, at, at a later stage in this, um, you know, there, there may be uh, questioning, etc. The, unfortunately, the voices, uh, you know, which talk about the vernacular, about the local, they're all drowned out right now. You know, it's, it's really quite frightening um, if we look around us today in how there is really no space for any voice other than that of not just normally elites, 
decide on what is what are the prevailing hegemonic public discourses they 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 hegemonize them but here it's even more limited you know it's within the elites it's a ruling class and within the ruling class there is no opposition voice in india right now you'd be shocked to know that in fact the person who asked me about uh, the media i did want to add to that answer that it's not because the media there's something wrong with the media you know there are very good people out there but the government control over media is at a new high the number of journalists who have been just shown the door recently ostensibly the reason is financial that you know the newspapers aren't selling and everything is in a downturn but this has become an opportunity for a witch hunt for just pushing out dissent thanks so kalam do you have thoughts um the Taoiseach, the Irish Prime Minister, Leo Bradker, mentioned last week the possibility of changing our system of how we deal with, with, with old people who, cannot, who, who need assisted living. And that having these large residential homes um, might be something we really have to think of scrapping. And I think one way of doing this, I mean, I think just if we need a policy on this now would be in the aftermath of this, or very, very soon, to, to actually ask the people who survived this, you know, the people who were in the residential place where many of their friends, many of the people around them died and the fear was enormous. What it was like and what it was like for them, not just that, to feel expendable, to have people actually talking about you in public as though you were expendable. But what it was like to move from your house to this home at the beginning. What were those days like? Was there another thing that should have happened then for you? How miserable was it? And I think we would realize if we saw those reports and if we're done, say, country by country, which would make them as intimate as possible, that something very wrong is happening in the way in which we are dealing with people who need assistance as they get older, and that this has to change. And this might be a way where each country could, could just look, look, this is coming my way. I mean, rich or poor people, I mean, that you do eventually have to think, well, where would I like to go when I'm not able to look after myself? Who would I like to look after me? How many, would I like 150 other people like me, all of us sitting around looking at a TV? Would, would, would I like that? And so that it's not a question of us imagining others now, certainly a question of us imagining ourselves. And, and, I, and I think it's possible that in the aftermath of this, we will be able to look in a new way at the way we're treating people who are not able to just, just the mere bit, I mean, uh, who are not able to look after themselves. So that might be one positive thing can come from this if we simply act on it to say, this, this is one thing we may need to look at. Um, and speaking of, of inequality, I mean, that level of inequality to be told that you're expendable and that it's debate going on. Some people think you're not, some people think you are. Well, I, I, I wouldn't like to be, you know, the, the victim or the subject of that debate. Um, just, there's a question about surveillance, right, and, and about how the increased surveillance as a result of COVID-19, how that will play itself out or how it might play itself out. So the question is, do you think that, um, oh, and I'm sorry, who's this from? This question is from um, uh, Bao Bao Zhang. 
who's a political scientist uh, postdoc coming into the Cornell Society of Fellows. And this is the question. Do you think it'll make the increased surveillance will make it more difficult for people to mobilize politically in the future? What does it mean for democracy long term? I might sure. hit on it just very briefly. Um, I think it's a wonderful question. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that we might think about is even how surveillance as a system leaves so many people unseen. Um, so I would love to hear Saketa's um, thoughts on this because, you know, I, I don't know an enormous amount about systems of surveillance, but I know a decent amount about the census, for example which is a, the American process of counting every citizen. And, you know, what happens with the census? Well, or actually not just citizen, every American within. Um, we, one of the things that we know is that there are people who are classically undercounted. And those tend to be the poor. Um, they tend to be those on the very margins of, soci of society. We tend not to see the people who are um, uh, undocumented, for example. And so the first thing I would say is that the solution to surveil everyone is conditioned on just a huge assumption. And that assumption is that everybody is surveillable. And I would say that, you know, there are a lot of people who are left out from that. The undocumented certainly will not be surveilled. The unhoused will certainly not be surveilled. They will be in particular ways like through policing, et cetera. But in other ways, they will be completely lost to this. And so that would be the first thing I would say. And then, you know, the second is, yes, I, I would have real concerns about national systems of surveillance. Um, and the basis of that concern is not with surveillance, though. It is with trust and whether or not we trust and believe in our governments. And um. Does, uh, Sujata, do you want to comment? Well, uh, I'd just like to make one small distinction uh, between uh, kinds of surveillance. You know, th there is the obvious surveillance which we, we know, which we live with. Um, the, the type which worries me is the imperceptible kind, the kind which comes uh, without your knowing it's surveillance. The example I gave in my talk today. Well, this is an apparently innocuous application. Uh, given the title, given that it's called Arogya, you know, it sort of it means that it's something to help you be free of disease. And um, you all, and it's it's meant to empower you, it's meant to tell you where the next uh, you know, where is, who is the person in, uh, in your neighborhood who is um, a case, a person who's suspected of, you know, who is the next infected person with the virus. And uh, so it sounds good. It sounds empowering. It's, it comes in in an innocuous way. Uh, the government declares that you can, they suddenly start booking on trains after you know, two months almost, and people are desperate to get onto these trains. And suddenly they say, to get onto this train, you've got to have this app, this Arogya app, right? So you have to have it, you know, so you get it. Now, the question is, 
Um, as Shema said uh, about the unhoused and those who can be surveilled, how many people in our country have a smartphone? We are, we are hugely connected as far as the you know, mobile network is concerned, but those are all 1,000 rupee cheap Chinese phones. So this needs a smartphone, which you have to have with this. So, and you know, through this, as I said, in every day in the newspapers, we are being told by, okay, what are the problems? What are the kind of compromises with privacy, et cetera? You know, your location is known to the government data. One minute the government tells, the U University Grants Commission gives instructions uh, to universities that, you know, please urge your professors and all your employees to uh, download this application. Now, why should a university teacher need this application, you know? Um, as as Seamus rightly said, you know, we are in the apparent safety of our, of our homes doubling up as offices, you know, uh, today. But the government has said this, when there's a hue and cry, then the government comes in and yesterday they said, well, it's quite all right, you know, um, maybe, you know, maybe this function of the app, which is about location, needn't be switched on. So it's kind of bizarre. But what, what to get back to the broader point, which might have get lost in the detail uh, that I went into, is that it's, the, it's this kind of surveillance which comes in the pretext of empowerment when you don't really know. It's not like phone tapping, et cetera, which is obvious. It's this which I think is more worrying uh, in the long run. And certainly in our country, we are adept at this. I think. So, go ahead. Colm, you have to unmute. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a big issue for gay people. Um, you know, as a gay man in Ireland, I, I would have no difficulty if they asked, look, for the, for the sake of public health, will you take on this app? But if I were a gay man in Hungary, I would be really worried that this would be a new way of getting at me, be a new way of making me feel small, be a new way of saying we're watching you. So I think, you know, in each country, I think you could draw a map of the world and you could ask gay people in each country, would you or wouldn't you? And you could learn a lot from that by just what level of trust do gay people have about their safety in their, in their own state. And in Ireland, I would have no trouble. As I say, in Hungary, I would. And you can take it from country to country, including, you know, everyone would know. So I think it's, it's, I think for any group, like, for example, gay people, this is really an issue and it's an important one. Yes. So we have a few people in the Zoom room who um, I'm going to call on to ask their own questions. And one is, um, is Angie Butler. So Angie, are you there? I'm here, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Uh, well, thank you to the wonderful panel. So, such a fascinating um, talk. I have a question for you all. Um, Sucheta, as a specialist of oral history, Colm as a writer who contributes to a variety of mediums and Seamus as a professor of sociology and also a creator of an archive of the present. I'm not sure um, what it's called, but it is an archive of the present trying to capture um, the response at the moment. 
How can we ensure that inequality before, during and after the pandemic is recorded in the most effective manner and in a variety of forms, including the creative form, so that future generations gain a full idea of the serious political and social issues that prevailed and were amplified during this period and not whitewashed as a kind of post-war effort of coming together and fighting the virus, which is really uh, not, it's very problematic and not helpful. Maybe I'll begin. I don't know. If, um, uh, I think it's a wonderful question. And I think, um, you know, there, there are a host of challenges with this, with something like this. Um, uh, what we really want is an archive of the voices that aren't heard. Um, and one of the challenges of an archive of the voices that aren't heard is um, uh, that, that those voices are, are being particularly taxed right now. And one of the consequences of poverty, for example, that, that we know of is that it's really cognitively exhausting to be poor, uh, that poor people have to think all the time. And so, you know, things that I'm currently not thinking about, um, where is my next meal going to come from? Where am I going to sleep tonight? What will the weather be over the next few days and how will I manage that? These are things that just are not important to me because I have an apartment that I currently sit in, there is food in my fridge. Should I not need, not, you know, should I need more? I can simply buy it. And so one of the challenges with creating archives of how things like this are being experienced is that for the people that we want information from, they're already so taxed in terms of what it is that they're experiencing. But Part of what I was hoping to convey in my comments was that rather than thinking just about the scientific solutions that we require right now um, uh, in terms of a vaccine or things that could reduce the overall harms that are experienced should you get COVID, one of the things that we could think about is empowering people from a wide range of places to actually do this. And so, you know, the, the, the program that I was thinking about um, um, and have done some work with is having people record stories of the people around them and simply ask them, you know, have you, what are you experiencing right now? How is it different than before? Um, you know, can you tell me a story about it? Um, and getting people to engage in collective storytellings of their own narratives and then finding ways to um, deposit them in particular places. And actually there are ways in which these kinds of narratives of people's life histories can be de deposited in the Library of Congress um, uh, as audio recordings. And I think doing things like that on an everyday level could be very, very powerful. I'd be interested, of course, from Colm and Suketa as well as actually Eileen as well from the perspective of the Heyman Center and the humanities, what the kinds of things that you all are thinking about. And, and Jane, I think, would be wonderful to hear from. Oh, you know. Suketa, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally concur with what you're saying. And uh, in fact, one of the archives that I work with, it's called the 1947 Partition Archive, which runs out of Berkeley and now is like huge, uh, both there and in a part, in, in our part of the world. Um, this has become a, now an opportunity for um, people to uh, record the experiences of their family members, you know, earlier it was all about professional, you know, quote unquote, uh, 
um, story scholars, as we call them, who would go out with a video and go to the house of a person. And now, like we're doing this uh, in through Zoom, through Skype, you know, through through whatever other the latest technologies which are available to us. And uh, in the same way, uh, you know, it's I think we we need to rethink. At least for me, it's it's meant kind of rethinking the whole idea of how do you do an archive? How do you build an archive? Because so far it's all been about going out there, you know? But um, now about maybe empowering people in with very rudimentary technology, with very rudimentary forms, just getting people to talk about what it is out there. And at a small level, uh, some of our students, you know, have been doing that because uh, this lockdown has affected young people in a way which simply just has not been uh, documented in India at least and mental health as you know just professionals just don't exist or they're just not enough and um, they have been uh, students who have come um, you know they've made uh, the university their life for the last maybe seven years and uh, now they have been uh, overnight the universities shut hostels and they went home and so they are really in a way aliens in their own homes desperate to come back to the spaces in the city which they know how to inhabit you know the what they're part of so and all kinds of experiences you know different lifestyles different relationships that they built now with their families so many of them of their own initiative have been uh, have been doing some of this this kind of you know recording of family members histories uh, talking about their own experiences but i think a great big effort um, which could be supported institutionally uh, that would be a great idea in india at the moment i see very little hope of that you know in our universities we've been like <laughs> i mean sort of <laughs> there's there's no possibility but uh, yes i think they you know at a public level yes we we really need to do this there, there are certain sections of the media who have been documenting these you know these long marches home of the migrants and i think that some of that is going to be fascinating uh, archives but the small uh, archives of the kind, you know, individualized memories. That's what we need to really tap. Right. So, Colm, has it, what, from your perspective, I mean, as a writer, but also as a thinking person? <laughs> um, I, th I think that novelists in their dreams like the idea that the novel isn't merely a form of entertainment or isn't something for people to do on the, read on the beach, but it, it's actually, has actually got a political role or a moral role, which is to allow us or to encourage us to imagine others. So that in this situation, when people are talking about isolation, of course, novelists, the whole idea is you spend a great deal of time alone. But to get time alone and to get a space alone, as Virginia Woolf pointed out, it you know, takes a lot of work. It, it needs money. It needs resources. Someone told to go into isolation who lives in a small apartment with a lot of other people, with you know one bathroom, one kitchen, few bedrooms, 
so this idea of isolation, this idea of, of, of us trying to imagine the plight of someone, especially a healthcare worker who knows very well the risks they're taking every day, but has to go home. And the whole idea of what that feels like. And so I think it's, it's one of the ways in which, you know, you, you, could, you could archive this in the future, but, but, but the need is to imagine it now. And I suppose one of the one of the ways that might help to imagine is is the general business of fiction itself as as the whole process of imagining the present and 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 seeing others in 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 full in in every particular way. So it's not just a statistic, not just healthcare workers. It's someone with a name. It's someone who had a particular journey home one day, realizing I think I might be carrying this, and I have a three year old. So it's all bring it down to specifics. And that is one of the ways that, you know, writers like to think. I mean, I know that it doesn't, I know that we didn't, you know, writers don't prevent wars, but nonetheless, the whole idea of um, a, a system of thinking whereby we're constantly in the process of imagining others and imagining others in sort of real time, in real life, not as, as something for an, for an archive, but as something that you do in, in the present. So there are a couple of people who, um, Eileen Kavanaugh, I, are you still there, <laughs> had a question that, um, about uh, empathy and equality. So if you're in the Zoom room, can you, can you ask the question? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, yeah great. Um, so I'm, my name is Aileen Kavanaugh. I'm a law professor at Trinity. Uh, Dublin just arrived this year, but I'm living in the UK and I've been teaching in UK universities for the last 20 years. So I, I have a question for Colm, uh, mostly about the connection between equality and empathy. Um, so when, when you talk to Colm about the role of a novelist, um, I, I agree that the, the role is partly to um, get people to imagine others in a deep way and imagine their lives, to step in their shoes a little bit. But yet that seemed to conflict with what you said at the beginning of your talk um, when you were talking about, let's say, Ireland, where, where it was big on empathy but, slow, but low on deliverables. But I wanted to push a bit on that because from someone who's Irish and is half in Ireland, but actually here in lockdown in the UK, it seems to me as if empathy is a big give, a big something that people need in this crisis and it is being delivered in Ireland. So my sense was that your portrayal of the Irish situation may have been too too bleak perhaps because in the UK we're looking at the political leaders in total despair. There is lack of empathy, there seems to be a lack of sincerity and involved in that lack of empathy and insincerity are really poor policy decisions. Whereas in Ireland I agree with you that the motivation is coming from a position of empathy but that is also delivering um, a good way of talking about the virus in Ireland and some policy advances like the decision to go into lockdown pretty early at least relative to the UK the decision and the commitment to increase testing which is again better than 
the UK, huge state subsidies um, for the unemployed and so on, um, public discussion about the about cocooners. So, so my question is, or my my point point that's intersecting with yours is to endorse the value of empathy, which I feel a great lack of here in the UK, and really to to point to Ireland as a country where things are not perfect by any means, but the empathy created some good policies, one of which was uh, uniting the public and private healthcare system, which was revolutionary and a positive development, both, both in what it symbolizes and in what it is actually doing. There was an important speech that made a huge difference to me, um, made in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, by Michael D. Higgins, who's now president of Ireland. And, and uh, he, he was a speech called Beyond Compassion, where he, where he spoke about the, uh, I suppose, uh, what Seamus has really been talking about, the idea of creating a sort of moral universe, which, which, is, which moves beyond empathy, beyond pity, into some notion of, of a genuine radical form of, 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 of attempting to create equality. So that, well, I mean, my response to that, I'm really sorry, is spare me your empathy, give me your policies. And I, I'm, I'm not comparing Ireland to the United Kingdom, which I think is a, is, is, is a different thing, but how come the death rate in Ireland is three times that of Austria? Now, I'm not aware of any great empathy in Austria. The Austrians are not known for their empathy, but they did something that we didn't do, obviously. And I would compare that to Cuba, to Iceland, to New Zealand and say, well, you know, Ireland might have been great at bringing this all together in the, in the private hospitals and the public hospitals at enormous, by the way, public expense. In other words, the taxpayers are paying, you know, rent for the private hospitals. No one has given anything for free in this business. And um, so that I, I, I really want to see action on this testing business. And I don't want any more empathy. I want action. And I feel the empathy is a way of masking inaction. And I feel the empathy is also a way of, of not making clear that the Irish death figures are very, very high. And um, they needn't have been so high. And somebody took their eye off the ball in that period. And the, the, the nursing home deaths, but also the number of people who working in the health service who themselves got infected is very, very high in Ireland. Now, I don't call that empathy. I call it failure of public policy. And I find Ireland sometimes gives me the creeps with, with, with its the sort of clawing sense of we're all in this together. Well, we're all in this together, the ones of us who are in the BHI in Ireland. For the others, the BHI is a private system of health. About half of us are in the BHI, the other half are not. Well, I don't call that empathy. I call that inequality. And it's been in Ireland for so long now. To try and get rid of it is, is really difficult. So um, spare me Ireland's empathy and give me better policies. Uh, that doesn't sound great, but, I, I, but, it, but if that happened, we would live in a better country. Okay, I'm gonna, so we, we have time for just a couple more questions, but Natalia Lago, who's in the, uh, in the Zoom room. Natalia, can you ask your question or? or? you want me to do that? Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. I, uh, it's been 
very, very nice to, to hear you all. Um, I'd like to ask about uh, the minimum wage policies, universal minimum wage policies. What do you think about that? We are, we have been discussing this in Brazil for a long time, but uh, it, we didn't manage to actually make it, make it work. And this, uh, this discussion came back uh, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to know what do you think? Do you think it, it, is it a reasonable proposal? What do you think of that? It's very nice to see you, Sucheta <laughs> and Eileen. Um, I'd be happy to just start quickly on universal basic income, um, which of course, yes, as um, uh, noted is something that has very strong initial support across Brazil. So for example, in Porto Alegre, not only having the participatory budgeting, but some view of maybe there's ways to provide this. And um, I said this in the last uh, panel I was on for this, uh, and I just want to repeat it now, that I think it's really important to recognize this is the moment where the impossible has become real, um, where all of these things that we thought were totally unimaginable and totally impossible have actually happened. They've become real. And so in the case of the United States, I would point to two major things that have happened. Um, the first is that people basically laughed Bernie Sanders off the stage for suggesting that we could provide universal basic income, that it would cost $3 trillion over 10 years. And recently we just dispersed $3 trillion in about four weeks. Um, but the second is that a major policy plank of the government has been to provide checks to people significant checks. They're not, they're not sufficient, but they're not nothing. And that now the Democrats have suggested that there needs to be far more, $6,000 for uh, up to $6,000 for families. And I would say that these policies have not been fully evaluated, but in cases where they have been slightly evaluated have big impacts on people's lives. I'm a huge proponent of just giving people money that so many of our social programs come with so many obligations and things that poor people have to do in order to satisfy them and that that's not sufficient. Um, just giving them money in this way is possible and this is a moment where it could be happening. This is the moment where everything we've been told is impossible, is actually in some ways becoming real and we might seize upon it. I would be very supportive of this. So I, um, I, I realize I'm aware of how little time we have, and Tomas Ryan has had his hand up, um, and I wanted him to ask his question now. Tomas, can you join? I think you have to unmute yourself. Tomas? Francesca, <laughs> can you? Sorry, excuse me, can you hear me now? Yes. <laughs> okay, first of all, I'd like to thank the panel for a very enlightening uh, discussion. Uh, I guess my question is primarily for Colm uh, Tobin, which is about um, the issues with, are we all in this together? And I think this applies to every country, but I am looking at it particularly through the lens of Ireland right now for obvious reasons. And it seems to me that how so many countries are dealing with this issue of, of how we're coming out of lockdown and how we're going to manage the 
the COVID-19 containment situation. Everyone, even, even in the UK, even in places where we're seeing huge errors, everyone is actually making extreme efforts. Everyone is doing things they wouldn't normally do at an individual level and at a state level in order to get out of this. But it seems to me that the problem is we all have our own foibles in different countries. And the foibles are, are different for, for different cultures. And I would say that in Ireland, um, the particular problem we're facing is not going to be specific to people who don't have VHI insurance because everything is public right now. And the problem we're about to face in not containing this virus is going to affect everyone equally. The economic consequences may not be equal, but the immediate consequences are certainly going to affect everyone. And it seems to me that there is some sort, I'm almost looking for the words, I'm looking for the, the ideas in which to express this, which maybe Colm can help with, is there's some type of culture around power in Ireland in particular, which is that even when it's not getting things done, it is not willing to expand itself, is not willing to be more inclusive, is not willing to ask for help almost. Something endemic in, in the way that we have a deference to authority and that there's a, a taboo about questioning this. And I think that this is the stone in our shoe, which for all intents and purposes has been irrelevant for the last two decades because of globalization, because we've been so international, that the provincial nature of our civil service has been benign for at least privileged people because it hasn't gotten in the way of things. But now here we are in this situation and it is probably the cornerstone which everything can fall apart. And, and I just don't know how to talk about that in public properly. Just very briefly, I would actually divide Ireland in, 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 into two, just people who are about to run out of money or just have run out of money and people who have not. And with, with this lockdown, there, there's so many people who were working week to week um, um, and so many people who had really good jobs, for example, either state jobs or jobs in which their salary continues to be paid. And so that would be a big difference. That would be a big thing in with that. Um, and for example, artists, I mean, people who work in the theater, for example, just take that, who have no income of any sort coming in now or no income coming in the future. And they were already being marginalized financially. But I would add plumbers to that. I would add carpenters to that. I would add anyone who works on, 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 on that sort of wage is really, really in a difficult position now in Ireland and other people who have a salary or not. So that, that's, that's just one small way of looking at the, that were ways where, that we're not in this together, which I think Sujeta has talked about um, in a much more, I, I, think, I think in India, this is, this, is, this is really much more serious, but it's not as though it doesn't exist, I think in any country where there's a lockdown at the moment, that, that this problem with the lockdown is that somebody, so many people just run out of money. And what do you do if you run out of money? And uh, that idea of, of basic wage, the dole, the, 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 the different nets we have for people. But, but nonetheless, I think that is a big division in Ireland at the moment. I, I, I think somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've run out of time, which is so sad. Um, but I also think that Francesca will be able to capture your questions, the ones we didn't get to or the ones that you're thinking about now. And if you 
if you send them to this and we can add them in some way to the archive or to the website. Um, and thank you so much to Sucheta and Calm and Seamus for really remarkable um, presentations. I have two uh, points of uh, housekeeping before we thank um, of the panel. One is that um, I believe a survey has been shared with you and for those who joined last week this one is shorter um, so please do take it and give us your feedback um, and we'll also share a link um, to this survey via email. Um, next week our workshop is on the everyday. It's at the same time in the various locations um, 4.30 in Dublin, 11.30 in New York, 8.30 in Los Angeles. Um, uh, the email with your uh, re with a registration link will be sent out to you shortly. And on that panel, there'll be the artist, North Irish, um, Irish and current res artist in resident, uh, residence at Trinity Long Room Hub, Rita Duffy. Uh, Rishi Goyle, who's the director of our Medicine, Literature and Society undergraduate major at Columbia University, as well as an emergency room doctor at Columbia University Presbyterian Allen Hospital, which has seen a lot of these cases. Um, and Shane O'Mara, a professor of experimental brain research and director of the Institute of Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. For more details about this series and all the other things that both the Trinity Long Room Hub and the SOF Heyman are doing, you can check out our websites. And now I just ask you all to unmute yourselves or Francesca can do it so that we can thank the panelists so much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, books, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.